0: Well, I've been preaching through the book of John for uh, some months now, and we've made our way to the famous John three sixteen. Last week, we spent the majority of our time on just the introductory phrase of that famous verse, for God so loved the world. And my desire was not just to try to go at a laboriously so, slow pace uh, for everyone. My desire was uh, to try to help us take even something that is so familiar that we may typically wash right over it and miss some really important and critical truths and make sure that we were understanding just the depths of what was being stated in this gospel-centered passage. This week, we're just going to move to the next phrase in this verse. We covered really just two words last week, love and world. We spent most of our time, and today, we're going to look at that next phrase, that he gave his only son. But just for a bit of the context, I'm going to read through John 3:16 16 through 21. When we get to the end of that, I'll just pray to ask the Lord to guide our time again here, and then uh, we'll unpack uh, that phrase just a word or two at a time. Let's read and then pray. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, again, we appeal to you, uh, your grace, your mercy, not that we, in our, our, our activities, in our self-righteousness, in all of our good behaviors, we have earned uh, the right to, to receive the gifts of understanding of a verse like this. But Lord, we just appeal to you on behalf of your grace, your love for us. And so, Lord, please help us. Help us to see a deep, lasting truths here. Help us to mine through any error that could be in our hearts, in our, our minds about some of these things um, so that we can see you more clearly, get a, get a better vision of what is true. And I just love it, Lord, and share it uh, widely and boldly. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, that verse we're covering today is, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. In summary from last week, as we covered that first phrase, For God so loved the world. We first backed up and looked a bit at what the for meant and how it was drawing upon what Jesus just spoke about, the raising up of the serpent on the pole in the Old Testament. But then we walk through a lot about the love of God for the world. In fact, I made the argument, in agreement with uh, most biblical scholars on this text, that the point of John 3.16, the chief reason that this verse is here, is to highlight the love of God for His creation. It is to explain God's motivation for offering eternal life through belief, in Christ, if you were just to kind of look for repetition cues on this passage, you would see that Jesus uses the word "believe" or "belief" seven times in this singular conversation with Nicodemus. So, the the whole bigger point that he's making in this entire text is that we need to believe. We need to believe in Him, believe in the name of the only Son of God, believe and have eternal life. That shows up repeatedly here. But only one time does Jesus mention the love of God. One time in this particular passage. It's right here at the beginning of John 3.16. And so I argued that that's why this verse is here. We already have all the rest of the components of this verse repeated other places. But here he's making sure we know the motivation for why he saves us through belief in his Son. So why would God provide salvation through belief in his Son? because or for he so loved the world. That's why God was compelled, not by anything outside of himself, obligation, duty, pity for the people down here. No, chiefly something inside of himself, love for us. I argued last week that this is, the, this is, this is not just the special kind of electing love that God has for his adopted children. That is true. God does have a special kind of love for believers. We'll see that all over the Bible. This is, I think, the universal love of God for the world. Every single person who's ever lived. I think that's what he's saying here. He has that kind of love for all the people of the world. That he gave his only son. His universal love for all people in the world compels him to give his only son. So we're going to take a look at that part of the verse this morning. That he gave his only son. I first want to just look at the only son part of that there because there, there is something pretty significant going on here. The term for only son here is monogonase, Monogonese, that's the Greek term there. It's a, it's a, a well-debated word. And, and for good reason, it's there for good reason because it describes something about the relationship between the father and the son. It's a Trinity conversation point. So this has been a this has been a point at which there's been great uh, uh, consternation about exactly what that means throughout history. And I could I could tell you a whole bunch of stuff of the way that uh, brothers and sisters in Christ have wondered exactly what's meant by that word monogenes. You might have it in your Bibles right here as here as only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Some of your translations might say one and only son. Some of your translations might say only begotten son. That's the King James translation I, I learned. That's how I memorized King, uh, uh, John 3.16 growing up in Awana clubs. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Begotten. People have wondered what exactly is meant there. What is Jesus meaning to say that he's the only son of God, the only begotten son of God? Well, an important point to make here is that this does not mean that Jesus was created or that he had a beginning. Rather, it emphasizes his unique relationship with God the Father as the eternal son. And I'll kind of use some theological language here. The eternal son, co-eternal, co-equal, who eternally proceeds from the Father. He's eternally generated from the Father. Believers in history have have strained at language to try to find ways to explain the inexplicable, how it is that we can talk about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Godhead. It's really challenging. There's a lot going on there. But every time that this particular Greek word is used in the New Testament, it is used to emphasize the uniqueness of, of a relationship between two people. The uniqueness of the relationship between two people. This is the same word that's used of Abraham's relationship to Isaac. Isaac is Abraham's only begotten son. You go, begotten? Well, he had more sons. He had Ishmael. So wait, what, what do we do? Well, this is a unique relationship Abraham had with Isaac, just as the Father in heaven has a unique relationship with the eternal Son. Jesus' relationship with God the Father is altogether distinct unique. No one else relates to him in quite the same way, including the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, being truly God, does not relate to the Father as a Son, but as the Holy Spirit. Awesome stuff we could unpack further and further and further, but here's here's the point here. It's made very evident to us Jesus is saying this, John is recording this, there is something uniquely special about the giving of His one and only Son, His only begotten Son. He did not withhold this particular... It's not as though God has tens of thousands, millions of sons, and He just picked one to give. I have so many, you can have one. No, 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 no. There's something special and unique about Jesus, and that's whom He sends. The Father gives the Son. Although he has unique relationship with one being, one person in the entirety of the universe, he does not withhold, but he grants. He sacrifices, he gives his one and only son. Nicodemus knew that Jesus came from God. In fact, earlier in the chapter, one of the very first things that Nicodemus says in his conversation with Jesus, that's the Pharisee Jesus is talking with here. One of the first things Nicodemus says is, we know you're a man who came from God because we see your miracles. We know that. Nicodemus knew Jesus had come from God. So he saw him as a messenger in some way, but I don't think he realized exactly who he was talking to. Jesus is far more than a mere messenger. He is the message. Jesus has not merely come to tell us truth. He is the truth. He didn't come to hand us a gift. He came to be the gift. This is significant. Jesus came. He was sent. And he was not at all reluctant to go. It's not as though the Father in heaven says, Hey, son, you need to go down there. He goes, Oh, man. Don't you know what they're going to do? It wasn't reluctance the perfections of the Son of God, he went... In fact, the Bible repeatedly says that Jesus gave himself. This is awesome language. This also goes to show just the enormity of the Trinity. The way that the Bible authors talk like this, the way that Jesus himself talks like this. I want to point you to Galatians 1, 3 through 4. I think this is one of the most helpful places. Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. You see that he says both of those things. So who gave Jesus? Jesus gave Jesus and the Father gave Jesus. That's what that text says right there. It's one of those it's one of those uh, who gave Jesus, Jesus or the Father? Yes, it's one of those kind of ones, right? Yes, he 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 gave himself and the Father gave and there was a perfect agreement, a redemption plan between Father, Son and Spirit to have Jesus come to the earth as a display of his love to bear the penalty for our sins. The Father gave the Son, the Son gave himself. It would be hard to overstate the importance of the fact that Jesus is a gift given to us. It would be hard to overstate that. That almost, in a way, almost makes my preaching job on this kind of thing easy, because I can't, I can't use too many superlatives. I can't say it too much. Well, I bet you're kind of going a little overboard what a big deal that is. No, it's, I don't know I could make a big enough deal about that today he gave us his son. One of the things that's so helpful right off the bat that any, anyone can quickly ascertain from the idea that Jesus is a gift. God has given us to him. is We have to understand the nature of a gift. A gift as distinct from a wage. You and I know that gifts by definition are unearned. Undeserved. In Romans 6, Paul even makes this exact point. You might even have that verse floating around in your mind if you're thinking about the wage and gift distinction. He says this in Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. So so sin pays a wage, it's death. Wages of sin is death. But the, do you remember the next line? Free gift of God. It's, It's awesome. Not just even gift. Free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. It doesn't even say the wage of sin is death, but the wage of God is. You see, that isn't awesome. And Paul knows it, and he sees it. He, He knows that that's true and wants to make sure that we understand. Gifts are not earned. Gifts are granted. They're just offered. It's one of the reasons that when Christmas time comes around, we don't play that game with our kids about the uh, present coal present, coal kind of thing. If, you're, if you see you're doing good, you know, as Christians, we're just like, oh, no, just grace, just, just grace for you on these kind of special days is how we want to think about it. You know, earn gifts. They're granted to you. Your life, your life is a gift. Every breath you've ever breathed is a gift. Every bite of food, every sip of drink, Every also satisfying yawn or sneeze. Every bit of joy. Every penny you've ever been granted. Your salvation. The Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. The Word of God to guide you. Your church. Fellowship with Christian brothers and sisters. Every good thing. All gifts. Undeserved. Unearned. Just graciously offered. It is Awesome. And because all those gifts are undeserved, you cannot pay God back for them. You can't do it. Ever had that awkward exchange with another person where they want to give you a gift and you want to pay them for it? Ever had that happen? We've had a couple of times in our marriage, we've had a bunch of times where uh family's like, hey, we just, can, we, can we come over and babysit your kids so you can go out for a date night? We just want to do that for you. Oh, that's awesome. They come over and babysit our kids. I get home, like, here, how much? No, don't, don't, don't you pay me, Right? There's a bit of that in there. Why? Because if it's a gift, if it's a gift, it must be received as a gift. If I try to pay for it, I'm saying, I don't want your gift. I don't want the gift. I want to be on equal footing with you. I don't want to be indebted to you. I, want, I, want, I don't want you to say, hey, I already gave you the gift. No, 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 you didn't. Remember, I paid you. Right? We may not process down that chain in our minds in that moment. We might just be thinking, no, I want to say thank you. But to receive a gift is to put ourselves in a love debt for somebody else. And it's, 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 to, it's to say, I will receive and not pay. You can't pay for it if it's a gift. Because the moment that you pay for it, it's not a gift anymore. It's just a wage. That's why your boss doesn't sit you down at the end of two weeks and says, you did a great job this last week. I'm going gonna, gonna to give you a present. And it's your salary. It's your paycheck. You go, uh, thanks. I did a lot of work for this. No, that, that's not a gift. It's a wage. You are owed that wage. In fact, if he didn't pay it, you could take him to the, to the judge and demand that he pay it. He's now in debt to you for your labors. That's the way that gifts versus wage work out. But oftentimes we have the impulse just in our, in our nature to resist or reject gifts and desire to pay back, so that it's not a gift. I couldn't help but think about a, a passage in the Old Testament in 2 Kings, chapter five. Uh, this is a story about a man named Naaman, who uh, is a Syrian commander of the army. He's, he's, he's a, a kind of a high-ranking general who contracts leprosy. He's going to die. Leprosy was really significant, even on the potential uh, that he might have. Survived it. He'd have been an outcast from society. It was a really significant thing, leprosy was, in the Old Testament, as I'm sure you know. Well, this guy gets this. He knows everything's falling apart. But he has a servant girl in his midst who's from Israel. And she says, go down to the prophet Elisha. I know there's a guy down there. He's, 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 he's in direct contact with God. He may choose to heal you. God may choose to heal you through him. It's your only hope. You can't heal this any other way. And so Naaman heads on down to Israel to do this. And long story short, jumping past a few of the details, he eventually gets to Elisha's home. Elisha sends out a servant and says, hey, here's what God says through Elisha. I'm just delivering the, the, the word to you. Go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. You'll be healed. He doesn't want to do it. He's talked into doing it. He goes and dips himself. And he's healed of leprosy. He's just healed. Miraculously, supernaturally healed. What is it that Naaman had done to deserve that? Nothing. He was actually an enemy nation. They were, in, they were in reasonable relationship with Israel and Judah from time to time, but it was not always a friendly nation. It certainly was in Israel. They had their own gods. In fact, he'll even say later in the passage that he goes into the temple to worship the false god all the time with his, with his king. And god, just out of grace and mercy, he restores this man's skin. He says that his skin becomes like that of a child, you know, pre-pubescent skin, And so do you know what he does? He does what we're oftentimes compelled to do. He goes, I'm going to pay him. I'm going to pay Elisha for this gift. So he he turns around, he goes back to Elisha's house to try to pay him. Long story short, Elisha's like, no, don't you dare. This is a gift from God. You can't pay for this. Interesting story. More stuff goes on. But you and I oftentimes, because we're like Naaman, because we're human, we have that desire in us to pay back for a gift, which would make it no longer a gift. Romans eleven thirty five says, or who has given him God a gift that he the person might be repaid? Who's given God a gift that that person could be repaid by God? That God would go, oh, so wait, how much do I owe that guy now? It's not possible. We can't do it. Our salvation, like Naaman's healing, is not a wage. It is not earned. It is graciously, mercifully granted. We cannot buy it off of Him. We just get to be recipients. I want to make just a few observations about Christ being our gift, about God being our giver uh, in in kind of the rest of our our sermon time today. And I actually think this is pretty significant for us. I want this to be the kind of thing that when you're teaching your kid, John 3.16, a grandkid someday, you're teaching a neighbor, a new believer, someone who's come to know the Lord, and you're trying to help them understand awesome verses that are quick Bible-wording Memory uh, kind of helps for the gospel. It's simple. John 3.16 should be on that list. It's a wonderful verse. That when you get to the, he gave his only son, that will be significant and meaningful to you that he's been given by God to us. So here's a few things I want you to have in mind about he gave his only son. First, God is a giver. God is a giver. He gives. Unlike the other gods, little g-gods that the world bowed to, paid homage to, worshipped, God is a one-way street provider. We never provide anything for God He does not already retain. He gives to us. We cannot give to Him in the same way that He gives to us. Can't do it. God provides for us and not the other way around. The pagans of Jesus' day, they knew exactly what it meant to pay taxes to a king. For the record, we know that too. We know the idea of paying a tax for a king. Those taxes are designed to be a wage that now we can demand something from the king, from the government. That's the way that that works out. Pagans knew about that relationship. Pagans knew all about the homage given, the worship sacrifices given for their false gods. They all knew about it. They knew if they wanted rain to fall in their field, they'd go to sacrifice an animal or be a part of some sacrificial ritual in order to appease their God to a degree that their God would say, well, now now I owe you rain, victory in war, fruitfulness and childbearing. So the God would be in their debt and the God would have to provide for the people as we provided for the God. That's the way that humanity oftentimes thought. In fact, oftentimes even in the Greek pantheon, the Egyptian pantheon, a lot of the, a lot of the, the deities in the far ancient uh, times, especially those in the days of Israel, Baal and Chemosh and Molech and Ashtoreth, these, these gods, these false gods, needed to be fed. Literally, they needed to be fed. Their temples were considered, not, not like house of God, like we talk about God's house, like, oh, he, he, if he didn't have this, he'd kind of be homeless. No, that's, that's kind of how they thought about it, some of their gods. And so... It is altogether unique to consider God's provision as that being from a perfect giver who never receives the way that these other false gods would. James 1.17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. i say that again. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Think about this for a second. This means that when the pagan went to offer a sacrifice to Zeus, Aphrodite, when they would offer these sacrifices, they expected that not only were they appeasing their God in some way, but that when they left there and rain did fall on their fields, my God heard me. You get it? So they could appeal to their God, rain would come from the true God, and they would give credit to Baal, they'd give credit to Molech. In fact, it's kind of amazing if you look back at the stories of the Old Testament where Elijah stands against the priests of Baal, and they have that big standoff on Mount Carmel, and uh, there's this moment where the priests of Baal are crying out to, to their God to make fire. Uh, just appear on this, uh, this sacrifice. And they go for hours and it doesn't work. Elijah calls up, even after soaking the sacrifice of water, and God, boom, lights that flame, and then immediately after sends rain. There had been years with no rain in Israel. You might remember in that story, if you're familiar with that one, Elijah goes running back to town. Why does he have to get there before Ahab? Why does he have to get there before everybody else? Because if somebody else gets there first, they're going to say, Baal sent the rain. But he shows up to go, Yahweh sent the rain. Because they're so used to taking credit for the things that God has given. Every time that a person has worshipped their false god in gratitude for victory in, in warfare, for uh, getting over a sickness or a disease, for their, their, for their wife surviving childbearing, those things, every time they thanked a false god, those gifts actually came from God. and Yet they were wrongly attributing those things to something false. God is the giver. He is the supreme giver. This means we don't only relate to God as a father, which we can in Christ, but also as a good and giving father. Not a withholding father, not a selfish father, not a father who will not provide what is good, but a father who loves to give what is good. Jesus even says, If the earthly fathers who will give their sons good things... Are here as an example. How much more, if you ask of God, will he give to you as a good father gives to a son? He is the supreme giver. And so that means that you and I, we can't outgive God. We can't outgive God. My wife is an amazing gift giver. She's she's just like, and she always plays that game before it comes to like my birthday or a time to give a gift where she'll kind of downplay it like, hey, we're just gonna give you like a bag of Doritos and French onion dip best snack in the world. And I'll be like, that's what's coming. I love it, doing that. That's the thing. I don't want anything else, honey. Some handmade cards from the kids. Great, that's good. And then she always does that. And then bam, trumps with some giant, uh, some gift that I never would have thought you know, that that she'd come up with. How'd you know I really would want that? I think that's cool. And He's awesome. If I try to compete with her to get a better gift, I lose. I've lost every time. So if you guys have good gift ideas, you can always tell me to use help. But you might have people in your life that are like that, really good gift givers. If you tried to compete, you'd lose because they're just—they're just, they're really attuned to those kinds of things. You can't outgive God. You can't figure out some way to give Him something that would put Him in your debt, that would win the giving kind of battle. You can never give more or better gifts than God. Yes, there is a way in which the Bible talks about what we offer to God and sacrifices of of praise and worship and righteous living. Yes, there is a way the Bible talks about that. But even when we do those things which are not gifts to God in the same way that the gifts come from Him, we could never give more or better than Him. So what should we do? Be grateful receivers. Lord, I'm not going to win. I'm not going to win that. Lord, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It should be every single morning of our lives we wake up, we should begin with, thank you. I'm breathing breath today. I'm alive today. I'm still saved. I'm still saved this morning. Thank you. I haven't made a shipwreck of my faith. That is you, Lord, that has sustained me. Jesus is the greatest gift that has ever been given. He's the greatest gift that ever could have been given. And so I said this quickly before, but I'll just repeat it here again. God did not hold back His best. He gave us His best. He gave us His very, very best. No other blessing that He could have offered to the world would have been as high value as Christ. None. None. A person ever were to think that God withholds good from his people, that is so awful and false. He gives us the very, very best. Jesus is a gift that deserves to be treasured. In fact, this is something that Paul reflects upon quite commonly. He says this in Philippians 2. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything is a loss. Who cares? I'll give away everything. What a price to pay. You're meaning I get Jesus and all I have to pay is everything? In the sense that we give up. We let go of. We realize there's nothing worth more than him. What a beautiful truth. He is the greatest gift given from the greatest gift giver. And so the receiving of Jesus as a gift is... And I may have kind of seen this little illustration to look for, but the idea of we're holding all these things in our hands... When God offers this gift of Jesus Christ, we just let go of the other things to seize him. I'll give up everything. Give up every other treasure. Give up every other good thing that I have in my life because this is nothing. This is rubbish compared to him. We don't pay God with our rubbish to receive the son. We drop it and receive receive him as a gift. Gifts, of course, as you know, must be received. They must be received. We must receive Jesus. I paused in John chapter 1 to make a note about this particular receive language. I think it's a really helpful way to think about salvation. It's given us in the Word. Uh, Look what it says in John chapter 1. I'll read verses 11 through 13. He came to His own. Jesus came to His own. And His own people did not receive Him. They did not receive Him. What's that word. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, this I, I spent time there then. I won't unpack this all again right now. But you'll see how those are connected. Belief in his name and receiving. If you have believed in Jesus' name, you have received him. If you have received Jesus, that has been done through belief in his name. Those things aren't separate. There's nobody out there who's received Jesus and not believed. There's nobody out there who believes in Jesus and hasn't received him. You, you get it. That's, that's what's going on there. We must receive the free gift of the Son of God. And if we don't, if a person will not receive Jesus, it is a rejection of God. It's what it is. I don't want your gift. 1 John two twenty three says that almost exactly. No one who denies the Son, that gift, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Do you see that? Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You either receive Jesus and have the Father and the Son, or, you, or neither. You can't have one without the other. That's why it's, it's extraordinary today that the enemy's lies have been so pervasive that billions of people on this earth believe that they have the Father while they boldly reject the Son. Boldly reject the Son. I think I made a point of this not long ago, a couple sermons ago. Islam is a great example of it. Boldly will say, we, we do not. We reject the Son. We reject His sacrifice. They'll even say He didn't die on a cross. They reject Him. And then all the while saying, but we receive the Father. No, you don't. There are Jews today who will say they accept the Father, Yahweh God, but they do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Well, guess what? You don't have God if you don't have the Son. You have rejected the Father if you've rejected the gift of His Son. So if you're not a believer today, this is our appeal to you. Receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus. Receive that. Drop everything else. You can't pay for Him. Otherwise, He's not a gift. Drop what you have. That's repentance. That's a turning from all the other hopes in faith to Jesus Christ. It's seeing His death on the cross, penalty paid for your sin on your behalf and his death, and then his burial on the ground. He is raised three days later to eternal life. And the only way that you can have that eternal life is by receiving the free gift of Jesus Christ. You must receive him. Believe in his name, and you will have eternal life. You will raise again as Jesus did. If you're not a believer today, that's what we want for you. We want you to be a believer, a receiver of Jesus. That's what we want. We want for you to get that free gift Unmerited. I want to offer just a few warnings as we kind of come to our latter part of the sermon here, kind of in our closing. A few warnings that I think come on the heels of this illustration, of Jesus being a gift, this this idea. I find helpful, and I hope that will be a good warnings for you. You can you can learn a lot about your life and yourself by looking at children. You really can. If you're, in a, if you're a parent at all, or if you have nieces, and nephews, or you get around kids at all, I think you'll, you'll pick this up pretty quick. Because adults are just big kids in so many ways. A lot of the pride or the selfishness or the childish behaviors we'll see in little kids is in us. We just have a little more polished versions of those things, right? It just happens. So we can see it in its more exposed and pure form, those, those, those issues when we look at a child. Have you, ever, have you ever seen a kid be told they're going to get a gift? If you, were going to, if you were going to come over to somebody's house to have dinner with them and say to their kids, hey, I'm bringing a gift for you. How long after you walk in the door before those kids are waiting for the gift? Even if they're really well-behaved and they wouldn't say it. What's going on? Was there something you're forgetting? Uh, we had Nana, grandma, in town this last week, and she, she had this great strategy uh, she wanted to preempt the uh, the, the her, her coming into town to visit, and so she sent her gift box for the kids, which she always brings uh, via uh, UPS, would so arrived at her door a few days before. So our kids are just looking at this box of Nana's gifts; they can't wait. So when she comes in the door, how long do you think it took before? We- hey, Nana, we have your box. Okay, we have that in us as adults; we totally do, right? But watch, kids. And gifts. Watch kids and gifts, and you will learn a lot about ourselves. You know, uh, you may disagree with me, but I I, I think that there may not be any worse gift to give a kid than cash. All right? Bear with me. Because if you've ever done it, I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Give a child one thoughtful gift, give them a present, a thoughtful gift, and they will receive it and be delighted. But if you give a kid cash, their eyes open wide. Oh, all the things. And all of a sudden, from that point forward, no matter how long it takes, their eyes open wide, their greedy little hearts gape open, uh, they're longing to be filled by a a world full of junk. My kids will wake up the next morning and be like, okay, I was thinking all night, here's a list of 28 ways I could spend this money. And their their, their money's burned a hole in their pocket for the days or weeks it goes by, right? Now, of course, we can and do learn how to spend money wisely, of course, and not in a greedy way, okay? It's good to teach our kids that, so... I guess you could argue it's good to give them cash. You can teach them that. But we do have a natural desire to satisfy our flesh, of course. One of the most most very brute, rote, natural, fleshly things about us, a desire to satisfy. And when given the opportunity, we set those desires loose to battle for our attention and for our affection. And so this can create a real problem in our hearts because we start giving it a kind of attention to our desires and the satisfaction of those desires that may not be helpful. There's lots of ways we can see this play out, but God's gift of Christ, consider with me, God's gift of Christ circumvents that natural proclivity. It helps. God determines the gift. He knows what we need. And that's exactly what he provides. He doesn't say, hey, you tell me what you want. Or you decide what you want. You figure out what you think would be the greatest need to be met, and I'll just bless it. What kind of Jesus would you like? What kind of teaching would you prefer? What would make you happy? Whatever it is, you just tell me, and you'll get it. As though he's some genie for wish fulfillment. One of the greatest errors produced by the human heart, and it is especially prodded in our day, is that we continually try to make Jesus conform to our image. We try to make Jesus into what we want him to be, and not the other way around. We want him to be what we want. We say, we say well, God would want me to be happy, and what would be happy is for me to pursue this adulterous affair. Certainly God would want me to be happy, so maybe it's not that big of a deal. Well, God would want me to have these good things, and I don't have them now if I take them. Maybe that's okay. Maybe God would approve of homosexual urges. Maybe God would approve of my desire for abortion. Maybe, and if you think any of these are a stretch, they are absolutely not. People all over our world today will say, Well, sure, God is a God who loves me and wants me to be happy. So if, it, if I think it makes me happy, it must be of God. There are entire movements in the evangelical world right now, to try to approve of the whole transgenderism and deciding what you want and pursuing it, no matter what God's word says. Why? Because they believe God just wants to make us happy. It's his highest goal. It's as though God gave the world a gift card. Whatever you want with it. You, just, you, you spend it how you'd like. No! God determines what we need. A perfect sacrifice for sin a perfect model of righteousness. When he sends his son in that way, the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see that order there? See that direction? We must acknowledge this. We want to have all of our desires satisfied. It's the most natural thing about us. But we neglect to see that the natural desires of the sinful heart are Insatiable cannot be satisfied. We must trust that he knows what is best for us more than we do. God, you know what's best for me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. God, I don't want to go down that path. I don't like that. It doesn't look like it's going to make a good impact. There's no way that can produce joy for me. No, stop it. What did he say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. This is so wonderful for us. Because in our sin nature, our tastes are not attuned to desire what God desires. And so instead of just giving us what we want, He gives us what we really need, really need. And as we grow mature and are sanctified, we begin to start wanting what He's giving. We start to have a hunger for the things that He is offering, and we crave righteousness, and we crave the right path, and we crave even the hardships that will produce joy. Consider up pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. You know, in our sinfulness... Our, our tastes are not attuned to right things. You know, it's, it's kind of like this. I, I went out to coffee one time with a, a, a Christian brother, and he took me to his favorite coffee shop. It was one of those, like, hoity-toity, you know, third-wave coffee shop. I'm like a second-wave coffee guy, and that basically means, like, the Starbucksy level, you know, not Folgers, ugh, but the, the middle-level coffee, I kind of like that. But the really good stuff, I can't tell it's good stuff. It tastes like mud to me. So I went out with this guy, and he's like, hey, let me buy you a cup of coffee. Trust me, this is awesome. And everyone around there um, had like, the, they, they full-blown, you know, had the whole coffee uh, shop ethos, uh, a kind of um, hipster mentality there on him. And so it kind of had that whole flow. And he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you one. So he buys me this coffee. I think it's some kind of espresso. And it was, it was served on a, a special plate with like a little uh, doily and then a shot glass-sized little cup with a handle on it, like a little, a little I little, like a giant holding a mug, you know, kind of moment. And a tiny little sip of this stuff, and he goes, no, 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 watch. And it was, it was 12 bucks. I <laughs> felt bad. And so he's like, here, try this, you're going to love it. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so I, I took it, and I, I, I took a sip. He goes, now hold it in your mouth, hold it on your tongue. And I was like, trying. <laughs> it was awful. It tasted terrible. And he was like, right and the guy who's made it, he's kind of watching, and everyone else is kind of, come on, come on, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna convert you to good coffee. And everyone else around there is spending their 12 bucks on their little special drinks, and I'm the only guy in the place that's like, this is terrible. Now here, I can grant, I, I, I suspect it's probably really good coffee. I actually trust their, their view of coffee better than my own. But my tastes aren't attuned to that refined level of something. There's nothing more refined, more perfect, more pure, more absolute than Jesus Christ. And in our sinfulness, our tastes aren't attuned to him. And so what does that mean? That means we're not even going to desire him. Have you ever had that happen where you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you love what is true, and you tell somebody else, you're like, look at this truth. You share a verse with them in tears, or you, you share with something that God has done, and they're like, oh, that, that's, that's what you like? And you're like, oh my goodness, this is the best thing you could possibly imagine. And they're like, uh, ah, I'd rather something else. And you know why that works, because in our sin nature, we're not tuned in yet, we're not dialed into it. This is why the Old Testament warnings about uh, attraction to folly and temptation are so, so uh, true, The New Testament says the same kind of things, but just read through the Proverbs of Solomon. What does he say to his young son? There's adulteresses out there, but don't worry. They're going to be really ugly. No. He says he's going to be attractive to your eyes. Sin is going to be attractive to you, and you're going to want to go after it, and others are going to entice you, and your heart's going to get there too. And so be careful. Your tastes are still for sin. This, of course, is true of the unbelievers of the world don't even like the taste of Jesus. But this this is still true of our sinful flesh, that we may still have that taste. Brothers, sisters, you struggle with thick pornography. You struggle with uh, uh, that, that kind of image and things like that God does not want for you. Sometimes as a Christian, you get really frustrated. You're like, why in the world would I have this in me? Your flesh still has that desire. You are in your flesh still attracted to what is not good for you. As believers, we need to pray that the Lord will change our tastes. How do you change tastes? You know, when I was a kid, I, I didn't like the taste of most vegetables. It's very typical of a lot of kids. I love vegetables now. Not all of them. There's some that are really bad out there. But a lot of vegetables are really good. And after you start having those things, you start refining those a bit, your taste buds grow. You kind of you mature. You get sanctified. and You kind of get to the point that you, you eventually look at some of the food that you used to love, the, the easy cheese in the mouth, and kind of go, that's ah, kind of gross to me now. Because as you get more refined on that stuff, just in the physical world, it's similar to what happens spiritually. When you put yourselves at the table of the Lord and open up truth and gorge yourself on it day after day after day after day, the lies and the folly are going to start to be distasteful to you. You're not going to want that crummy video you used to, uh, you know, that, that raunchy comedy you used to watch thought was funny. You're, just, you're going to, how do I, I laugh at that? And, and the things that used to bring you you a kind of earthly happiness, you're going to go, that's never produced good. Why would I want that? And God, the Lord's going to work on you and so seat at the table every day and feast yourself on truth, feast yourself on goodness. You must develop a taste for it. Develop a taste for Christ in your life. Be satisfied by nothing else. As Christians just, oh, have good meals of the word and truth every day. What about the unbeliever, Rich, that sounds well and good, but what about the unbeliever? What about the person who doesn't have a taste for God because he's spiritually dead? Spiritually dead men don't long for Christ any more than physically dead men long for bread. What are we to do? You must be born again. You must be born again. So, what's your hope, Christians? Cry out to God to raise dead, spiritually dead people to life. That's what you do. That's what you do. That's what you invest your energy, energy into. Lord, save that person. Draw them to you. Make them spiritually alive. Give them a taste for Jesus. Help them to know this. And then don't be super frustrated when you run into people who don't love Jesus, don't have a taste for him. Of course they don't. Not yet. Don't be dissuaded by that. Just cry out to the Lord for salvation for the lost. Another warning. The enemy employs many strategies in order to tempt us to not see Jesus as the perfect gift that he is. And one of the ways that he does this, and this is also very typical of our day, is he he seeks to dilute the gift of Christ in our lives. So again, consider children with me. Consider just a, a kid. You're going to give a kid an option. They can either take this gift over here on the table, one gift, from, from, from a, a loving parent, or 100 gifts on the other table, table number two, from people who don't really know them. Now watch the kid. What happens? Oh, uh, uh, I know you know me, but, but all those gifts, right? Now, what if, what if the enemy gets a little bit more wily, a little more shrewd than that? And he says, no, 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 you don't have to make the choice. You can have Jesus. Let me just push the tables together and slide all the gifts into a big pile. You can have Jesus and all the other things, too. Why give up all the other things that make you happy? If Jesus makes you happy, take all the rest as well. That's how you get maximum happiness. You can have Jesus and the idleness. You can have Jesus and the lust." You can have Jesus and the hatred in your heart for somebody else. You can have Jesus and the pride and the selfishness. Why throw all that stuff out? Eat it all. Have the good meal and the poison. Come on. You love it. This was the problem with Eve in the garden, wasn't it? God has a, There's a better gift out there God's withholding from you. Why not have that? And then you can have all the things that God has. You can, why not? Why not add to the goodness of your garden experience? You deserve it. Go, girl. Get it. One of the strategies here is he seeks to try to make Jesus less. He dresses up all of the other gifts in such a way that they appear to be more desirable to our eyes. Just, even just the volume of them, the number of them. He tries to water down, dilute. He diminishes or reduces Jesus, and the, the purity of what he is as a gift By piling all the other things around. And you know that he does this. He tries to make Jesus not altogether unique and special. This is the way that so many people treat Jesus today. And Christians, we're prone to this. Our flesh is still on us. And so we can have Jesus and try to pile a whole bunch of other things on there too. We can, like in that illustration I said before, have all the other things that we have hope in in our arms and uh, a good job and retirement and, and, a, and a whole bunch of uh, people around us who will uh, think well of us and tell good things to us. And I want all of these things. And go ahead, toss Jesus on the pile. That'd be great. Add him to this. We have to not fall for that lie. We have to just let go of all the rest and say, I only want the one gift and receive Everything. You must see Jesus as glorious, as wonderful, as perfect, as all that we need. He is the perfect gift. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I'm so grateful for truth. I'm so grateful for your word. Even, even the things that we get in your word, the, the physical Bible, this Bible with paper and ink, and, and I can hold and open, that's a gift. That's a gift. We get to read these things and study your word, and thank you for that truth, Lord. Help, help us to develop a greater taste for you and for truth, for your Son. Lord, help the unbelievers in our lives to be awakened to new life. Draw them to yourself, that they too may, may taste of the truth and desire more. And we need you to make that happen, Lord, so do it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's special that we get to have communion this morning, as it is any morning. But when we're thinking about the nature of God being a giver, and us receiving a gift, this is this is the whole point. This is a gift pointing us to the greatest gift, Jesus' broken body and has shed blood for us. If you are a believer today, if you have if you've let go of, and imperfectly so, uh, the things in your life, and you, have, you are appealing to God for your salvation on the, the finished work of Christ on the cross alone, you're welcome to come forward today, not because of all the good things you did to earn this table, but because of what he has done to earn it for you. I'm just going to pray to open our communion time. You're welcome to come forward, grab the uh, the double stack of cups, bring them back to your seat, and we'll partake of the elements together in just a few moments. Father, thank you for the great and wonderful gift of communion that points us to the even greater gift of what these elements represent, that Jesus did come to live on this earth. He did give his very life to die for us as a demonstration of his love, your love for us, So let us soak it in this morning. Let us receive your love fresh this morning. Let us be reminded by that today as we take these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.